The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Robin Mack from Reuters Breaking Views in Hong Kong, and I'm joined by author and lawyer Anthony Daprin, whose latest book, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, just came out recently. So, Anthony, welcome, and thanks for being here. Thank you. So let me start by asking you about, I guess, the current state of the Hong Kong protests. This is something that, you know, you've been following very closely since they all started last summer. You've been deep in the trenches on the front lines. And sort of with the COVID-19 outbreak really putting a halt to, you know, a lot of the gatherings and demonstrations... What is your sense of what's happening with the whole movement now? I mean, do you see any activity going on, any plans for future protests once, you know, the social distancing measures ease off? Mm. Yeah, certainly the the COVID-19 outbreak put a stop to the the regular, well, at one point we had the weekly protests uh, on the ground in Hong Kong. But that doesn't mean that the movement itself has ended. And I think uh, as a starting point, all of the underlying political tensions and unhappiness that was driving the protests continue to be there. The, the government did not offer any kind of political resolution to the political problems that were driving those protests. So the, the sentiment is still there. And so the people, I think, are, they're still... That, that underlying drivers to protest. And so I think once the virus restrictions begin to lift and people are able to gather again in public places, I think we'll start to see that happening. Already there are some plans for protests coming up. Every year in Hong Kong there's an annual vigil on the 4th of June to commemorate the, the Tiananmen Square massacre and protest groups have already said they plan to hold that vigil and police have said they may or may not grant permission to that depending on the, the status of, of virus restrictions at the time. And then, of course, we have the annual 1st of July march that happens again every year in Hong Kong to protest against the government as well as in support of various causes. And activists have said they plan to hold that march. And I expect, given the the sentiment that still is lingering, that that march will probably be a very big one. Yeah. So let me back up a bit and, and sort of ask you a bit more about, I guess, the a lot of the political drivers of, of the discontent in Hong Kong. I mean, given that sort of the economy is in deep recession. We had, you know, a 9% contraction uh, in first quarter GDP. And Hong Kong has also been, you know, seen as a model of, you know, how to contain the COVID-19 outbreak. Do you think that sort of eased some of the pressure and discontent towards you know, the current chief executive, Carrie Lam, and her government. Hmm. Uh, what's remarkable is that it didn't, um, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that the Hong Kong government did do a pretty creditable job in, in, in managing the virus outbreak here, especially given Hong Kong's proximity to the mainland. There are survey results that show that the Hong Kong public overwhelmingly credit themselves credit Hong Kong's strong civil society and a high awareness, perhaps arising from the from the SARS epidemic of 2003, a, a high public awareness of health and hygiene issues, and don't credit the government. And in fact, there was a fair degree of unhappiness with how slow the government was to close the border with the mainland and to prevent cases of infection flowing into Hong Kong from the mainland. And so, but yeah, paradoxically, notwithstanding the Hong Kong government having done a good job, 
that didn't do anything to improve their popularity or, or improve their image in the eyes of, of much of the Hong Kong public. And uh, there were, just to, to go back to the underlying causes of the protests, there were, of course, the hated extradition bill that sparked the protests last year. But then last year's movement broadened into a pro-democracy movement of demanding greater democracy, universal suffrage for the election of the chief executive, um, full suffrage for the legislative council, and also it turned into a, an anti-police movement given the dynamic between protesters and the police last year. And really underlying all of this was anxiety at Beijing's influence in Hong Kong. Now, not only have none of those issues been resolved, but the anxiety caused by Beijing's influence has been ratcheted up a couple of notches by the things that Beijing has been doing over the last several weeks in Hong Kong. Right. So recently there has been a couple of high profile arrests and some comments made. I mean, can you just talk about what Beijing has been doing Yeah, so there are two Beijing departments, if you will, that are responsible for overseeing Hong Kong. One is the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office based in Beijing. It's the the main government department in Beijing having responsibility for Hong Kong policy. And then on the ground here in Hong Kong, we have the Central Government Liaison Office, which is Hong Kong's representative office here on the ground in Hong Kong. Now, there is a, a provision in Hong Kong's constitution, the basic law, that says that no departments of the central government may interfere in the governance of Hong Kong. Yet in the last several weeks, those two departments have made increasingly bellicose public statements. They've been criticising the pan-democrat legislators in the LegCo, who have been filibustering to hold up the legislative agenda there. When their statements were criticised for being potentially in breach of Article 22 and unduly interfering in, in Hong Kong, they made a very strongly worded statements insisting they had an absolute right to supervise Hong Kong outside and beyond anything that was written in the basic law, sort of claiming a an extra legal sort of inherent power to themselves, which caused a great deal of concern. And then they've continued to make statements against protesters, criticising protesters, criticising pan-democrat legislators and protest leaders. And so really, I think, seeking to normalise their position as, a, as an active participant in Hong Kong governance, which is really very alarming, I think, for right. many in Hong Kong. Then separately, we've seen some very high-profile arrests. The government on one day arrested 50 15 of the really the most senior pan-democrat politicians and protest leaders in Hong Kong, including very internationally famous figures such as Martin Lee, the founder of the Democratic Party, other very prominent legislators and, and lawyers, people like Margaret Ng, uh, Longhair, a very prominent, colourful local politician. And so all these people were rounded up on one day and arrested for charges relating back to the, the protests of last year, really sending a signal that no one was going to be spared in a very broad-ranging crackdown that will, I think, cover many people who were involved in last year's protest actions. So I think one of my favorite parts of your book is your, I guess, your legal analysis of sort of what's happening, because you sort of argue that, you know, there is this greater battle playing out, you know, in the courts and and legal system, and you call it lawfare. Mm. And I guess what you just said right now seems to fit right into that. So can you just walk us through a bit more what you mean by that? Sure, yeah. So I use the term lawfare to describe an approach by the Hong Kong government and and no doubt uh, Beijing behind them to use Hong Kong's legal system to very carefully target political dissenters. And this actually goes back to the umbrella movement of 2014, um, the last really major popular uprising in Hong Kong, when the government, in order to end those protests, had civil society actors, companies, obtain abjunctions in the Hong Kong courts requiring the roads to be cleared. And then by enforcing those injunctions, they cleared the protests. So it was a way of using the civil court system to target their 
political And these are awareness. colonial era laws too, right? Yes, I mean, that, they're that's very right. yeah. outdated, antiquated mm. laws. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So the main law that they use to police the protests is the Public Order Ordinance, which dates back to the protests in the 1960s under the, the British colonial administration. Chris Patton actually tried to wind those laws back and bring them more into step with contemporary human rights standards. But at the handover, uh, Beijing put them back into their former colonial form. So what the government has then been doing is using these laws to specifically target activists to drag the prosecution process out over a long period of time to constantly appeal sentences. So when they feel that the courts have not given strong enough sentences to the activists, they've um, appealed and had their sentences increased, for example, from a community service order to a custodial sentence. And then they've also used the legal system in other ways, for example, through the famous oath-swearing controversy, where some of the pan-democrat legislators deliberately misswore their oaths as, as an act of protest. The government then sued to have them removed from their positions. Not not only that, they then demand that they repay all their salaries and stipends and so on, effectively uh, putting them in a position of going bankrupt. So all these different ways of using the legal system and the prosecutorial system to target dissidents. Now, it's a very clever tactic for them to use because when they're ever criticised by the international community or criticised by human rights organisations, what the government can then say is, hey, all we're doing is enforcing the rule of law. You, the international community, always tell us how important the rule of law is. We agree with that. Um, and all we're doing is enforcing the law you know, equal-handedly. Now, of course, that's not what they do. They do it in a very targeted way. And people who have committed offences, for example, on the pro-government side don't often get the same treatment that people on the anti-government side do. But it's a way of targeting dissent in in a means that, at least by all external appearances, is legitimate. So, I mean, you have two decades of experience as a lawyer advising companies, both in Hong Kong and, and mainland China. How do you think, I mean, as a lawyer, when you sort of see this happening, I mean, how does that affect Hong Kong's status as mm. sort of a international finance center where, you know, in a, in a free economy? What do you think that does to that? I think a lot of people try to take comfort in the thought that, well, even if things go in an unfortunate direction here in Hong Kong, it's only going to apply to politicians and human rights issues and stuff, and it won't affect business. I think that is probably a, a, a bit of a misconception. Um, firstly, where that dividing line lies is not always clear. And I think companies will soon find that politics is starting to play a role in business in Hong Kong in a way that it never has before. Um, a company that discovered that very quickly and very publicly last year was, of course, Cathay Pacific, when their CEO was forced to resign along with, along with one of his other senior executives to take responsibility, in effect, for Cathay employees participating in the protests. A number of other companies have found themselves dragged into uh, political-related questions. HSBC has been at the centre of some controversy um, for closing down some accounts of protest organisations which the government alleged were involved in money laundering. Many pro-China businesses, on the other hand, here in Hong Kong have found their premises and their business subject to vandalism and attacks by protesters or subject to boycotts. And so politics is sort of being dragged into business in a way that it hasn't done before. And so I think businesses here are going to have to start thinking about the impact of politics on their business, the impact of politics on their relationship with their employees, with their customers in the mainland, um, with the government authorities, basically having an awareness of politics that probably they're used to having in the mainland, but never previously gave much regard to yeah. here in Hong no, Kong. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's also this misconception that, you know, Hong Kong is so valuable as a finance center to China that they wouldn't do anything to tip or rock the boat for the matter. But mm. let me ask, what are the things, you know, to watch out for? You know, would it be companies start 
moving out of the city? Would it be, you know, mass exodus of talent leaving? Because that doesn't seem to have happened despite, you know, all these warnings. Mm. I think that we'll see the, the younger generation of talented people, particularly young Hong Kongers, um, looking to move elsewhere. I think that's starting to happen slowly. Um, that may happen increasingly. I think we already had any anecdotal reports of assets moving out of Hong Kong during the protests last year, in particular financial assets, assets that can easily be moved. People have a sense that, as I say, Hong Kong is going to be subject to politics. And if you feel you have any kind of political exposure, it may no longer be a sensible place to keep financial assets if you can put them elsewhere. Certainly companies making long-term investment decisions, such as regional headquarters decisions or those sorts of decisions, will have to think about political implications for their business, the political implications of the relationship between the Chinese government and their home government, if they have a strong affiliation with, with certain national governments. And all these things are going to feed into decisions that aren't going to happen in the course of the next several months. But over the next, say, two to five years, we may begin to see a very a noticeable change of the landscape here from a, a multinational cosmopolitan landscape to perhaps a more mainland-flavoured landscape. Right. So, what, I mean, what do you think is sort of the ultimate compromise? I mean, it seems both the government here and Beijing are refusing to sort of back down. The protesters are refusing to back down. I mean, something has to give at some point. So what do you sort of see the ultimate compromise being that would be acceptable to both sides, Mm. if there is one? Yeah, I don't see Beijing as being much in the mood for compromise. Certainly from the way Xi Jinping has conducted himself and and directed Chinese policies, whether that's within China in Xinjiang and Tibet, whether it's in South China Sea, whether it's with his aims to project power through the the Belt and Road Initiative, the Xi Jinping administration is very strongly centralised and I don't see them having any stomach for compromise with Hong Kong's Democrats. I think we saw that quite clearly when Hong Kong was frankly in some degree of chaos last year. Beijing's attitude seemed to be just a step back and and as I've written to, to let Hong Hong Kong burn, knowing that they're always going to be there to come and pick up the pieces and assert their authority over whatever's left at the end of the day. So I don't, I don't think that there is much scope for compromise. Beijing will, I think, continue to exert pressure, uh, will continue to use all the various tools at their disposal from the political organs of the, the central government liaison office and the central government, from their relationship with the pro-Beijing political parties here in Hong Kong, through to their united front networks that stretch really quite broadly and deeply throughout Hong Kong society con- to continue to try to make Hong Kong society over into the image that they want it to be. And if it means that they lose a generation of Hong Kong's youth in the process, then I think from their point of view, so be it. Yeah, and it seems like they're already starting to push through some new national security law and the anthem law. So it looks like they are really just pushing ahead. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And we'll continue to see yeah. um, arrests and prosecutions of dissidents until either the cost of dissent just becomes intolerably high for ordinary people or they're all in jail or they all leave. That's quite depressing and <laughs> grim. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is from the point yeah. of view of the, you know, the quality of life of ordinary Hong yeah. Kong citizens. And that's really as Hong Kong ever has been, that it's been governed for the benefit of the tycoon class and the ruling class and, and the elites, once the colonial elites and now the Beijing-affiliated elites and the local Hong Kong people really just get blown along with whichever way the wind is blowing. So I know that the Legislative Council elections coming up mm-hmm. in September, um, this is for Hong Kong's parliamentary body, There is a sense that this is sort of like one of those make it, break it moments for, I guess, the silent majority that they can vote. Do you think that's a good way to sort of take some of the pressure off 
of the political tensions and... Yeah, absolutely. And we, we saw this last year, really, when we had local council elections here in Hong Kong last November, the, the district council elections. And what those elections saw was a record high turnout for an election in Hong Kong, a very strong win for the pan-democrat parties. They had a sweeping victories across all but one of the 17 district councils. Um, and what we also saw was that shortly after that, the protests sort of quietened down a bit and the tension dissipated, which really you would have thought would be a lesson to the authorities that democracy actually works as a safety valve to release pressure to you know, release the tensions and to sort of go some way to, to solving the discontent. So we, of course, have even more important elections, as you mentioned, coming up in September. I think it's going to be a very hotly contested battleground. Clearly, Beijing will want to be doing everything they can to prevent the same kind of result they saw last year. And the Democrats will see this as a great opportunity to, to show exactly how deep the sentiment on their side runs in the Hong Kong community. But you'd think the government would have the wisdom to realise that allowing that election to go ahead in a free and open and transparent way is the best way to relieve tensions in the society and they should live with the results whatever they are. And I think from the Democrats' point of view, if they can take the strong result of last year's local council elections and build on top of that strong result in, in this year's legislative council elections, it puts them in a, a potentially very strong position to at least be you know, kingmakers or to be very, very influential on the committee that elects the next chief executive, which will also happen in, in a few years' time in 2022. So it's certainly a sense of momentum building for the pan-democrats and, and Beijing doing everything they can to, to try and stop that. Okay. So it'll be, it sounds like Hong Kong will be in for a very eventful summer leading up to September then. Yeah, I think we'll have another uh, summer of discontent <laughs> yeah. this year as we had last year. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Anthony. That's um, very helpful. And um, yeah, thanks for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again for coming on. The Exchange is produced by Jamie Lowe and Freddie Joyner. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out every day on breakingviews.com. Do tune in for the next edition.